Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker, an online advertising network for the culture web. Do you want to reach people who like books, movies, music, art, photography? Go to litbreaker.com. And learn how you can advertise on a great variety of culture sites like the Nervous Breakdown, the Paris Review, the Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, the list goes on. You can advertise on the full network or you can pick the sites you want and advertise piecemeal. It's very user friendly. Go to litbreaker.com for more information. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for the culture web. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Here we go again. Right. This is it. This is other people. This is probably slowly evolving. This is eventually going to disintegrate. How's it going? Uh, what's happening out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and uh, there's a lot going on. It's been kind of a busy day. Uh, my wife texted me. My wife, Carrie, texted me just a little bit ago. Uh, she was out running errands, and she texted me and was like, uh, I think I just had my bloody show. And in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, the bloody show. I remember this from when my daughter was born, uh, you know, years ago. It's a, it's like, you know, it's something that happens in late pregnancy and, you know, it's a little debatable. Do I divulge this on a podcast? I think it's fine. It's part of the pregnancy process. It's bio, you know, it's biology, it's human biology. It's fine. We're all adults here. So I'm uh, texting back. I'm like, are you okay? Everything good? And then I'm going to like Wikipedia and I'm, I'm looking at like the entry for bloody show. What does it mean? Do we go to the hospital? Do I pack a bag? I remembered that it was a thing, but I couldn't remember what it meant. And uh, apparently it means that labor is beginning, but it's just like a sign. And it could be days, it could be hours, but it's most likely days. But it's beginning. And that's where we are. So, uh, you know, who knows? I was thinking maybe I would have a show on Sunday for you. But uh, if this baby comes, that's probably not happening. In fact, if the baby comes this weekend, uh, I would imagine Wednesday of next week, I could have to take off. I hope you understand. I, I can't say. I have no idea exactly what the schedule will be. 
once this baby shows up. I'm, I'm imagining I will be a little bit discombobulated for, you know, a little while, and then I'll get back on track. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Jim Gavin. He has a story collection out from Simon & Schuster. It's called Middlemen. Uh, it's, a, it's a collection that just uh, it got starred reviews everywhere. Everyone loves it. Critically acclaimed. Showered with effusive praise. And uh, I'm just very pleased to have had the chance to talk to him. He came over. He sat down. And uh, just a really good guy. So I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to share this conversation. Here he is, folks. This is Jim Gavin. And his story collection, one more time, is called Middlemen. I think, like, very early on, I had some notion of being a priest. And I, I think I told my mom that it seemed like a good job because you would do mass in the morning and then could spend the rest of the day, like, watching football or something. That's, <laughs> that's how I thought of it. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Like, the, I actually I have very warm memories of, of Catholic school. Like, um, I remember... My mom was around the school a lot. I remember being in like the school office and she was talking to the nuns. It was like, you know, lunchtime or something. And I remember a guy walked in and he was about, looking back now, I can see he was about in his thirties and he just kind of had this like look of on his face of kind of wonder. And he, he's like, I'm sorry, I just drove by. Like I, I drove by and I heard all the, you know, the laughter on the playground and I saw the uniforms and he was like, I went to Catholic school. Like he was so drawn in by this like memory of Catholic school. I remember thinking like, who the fuck is this guy? Just <laughs> kind of another weirdo. But like, I kind of have a similar feeling now. Like it, it, it does have a bit of a tinge of, uh, feels a bit idyllic to me. Um, like Mayberry kind of like a, a little bit. I just think like that there was like a real sense of community, like the parish, um, it had its own, it was its own little world and feeling. Um, it, but that, that didn't last too long. By the time I got into junior high, I was, you know, fuck all this and everything. But like, I, in general, like, I think I, I, I was very lucky. <clears throat> My parents made a lot of sacrifices to, you know, put us through Catholic school. So I felt very, they're good schools. Yeah. You know, so I, uh, they're good with, they tend to be gooder or gooder. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they tend to be good. Uh, I'm terrible at math. Yeah, and I don't think my Catholic education helped me with that. But like reading and stuff, I was I'm worried like, about your English too. You know, <laughs> it's more gooder than it used to be. I, I yeah. So okay. So your parents very devout people? Not really. I mean, I, I guess my mom, my mom was 
the one word I wouldn't I wouldn't associate with my family is pious. Like uh, we're very, you know, both my parents uh, were just trying to get by. And what, what do they do? Uh, my dad worked in plumbing. My mom um, had a bunch of. She was like an assistant at a nursing home, and um, at one point she opened an illegal daycare in our home. So our our, our home was just kind of overrun with like all these little monsters. How many siblings did you have? I have two sisters. Okay. So I'm like a lot of kids. Yeah. So my, when I think of like my house, it's just like shag carpet and children flying around (laughs) everywhere and just me kind of stepping over them. Um, uh, so my mom had a very strong faith that was very practical in its kind of expression. Like she, the, the parish, she just was so involved with the parish. Um, but she wasn't like this kind of bright eyed, you know, uh, God lady, you know, she, I, you know, well, you know, I think when you, you use the word community earlier and this is cause I'm not a, I don't practice any religion or anything like that or attend church anymore. I was raised Catholic, but, mm-hmm. uh, like just at the level of community, I find myself envying like just donut Sunday, getting together, yeah. having like some people that you see every week. It can be hard to find that absent of, I don't know. I mean, it's either church or it's AA, or, which <laughs> yeah. functions like a church. Yeah. Um, maybe even better because everyone's confessing to each other and, t- you know, there's a, and then you have like a sponsor. Like I almost want to join AA just for that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you have, uh, what else, you know, I guess you can form some sort of club or what, what do you do? Go on like a hiking meetup or something? Yeah. The, uh, I know like, yeah, like, you know, Tito's tacos on, uh, Sepulveda or Washington, I guess. I go there because it's like Taco Sunday. Like it's such a, it just draws a beeline in my brain from to like childhood and like, yeah, Taco Sunday at St. Norbert's. You know, um, you know it's gonna happen. Yeah, you can count on it. Yeah, so these deep fried tacos I associate with uh, the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, that's some, that's something I'm thinking about a lot lately. Like my older sister recently joined the Elks Club. Uh, in, what is that? In Orange. Uh, the Elks are like one of these fraternal orders. That, okay. um, Wait, you mean your sister joined it? Yeah. Which is, you can all, women can all, I think the Elks started letting women join about 25 years ago. All right. And it's, it seems awesome. Like it's, you can come and go. There's a bar. I was like, I, th- I should join because I went with her and we got a Guinness and a vodka tonic for like $7. Yeah, that sounds good. So that. That's community, right? And, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's it's kind of has this screwball cr- culture, and like there's uh, there's a ritual aspect to it, um, right. and the whole deal there is you don't talk about religion or politics; it's, it's just a place to go, and they do a lot of philanthropy and stuff like that. And I don't know; it's kind of a I have some feeling that like places like that might actually be coming back into vogue. Uh, well, I, I was listening to uh, Mark Maron's podcast. He was talking to uh, Penelope Spheris. So mm-hmm. that was the episode that it was a recent episode. Yeah. And she was telling all these stories from back in the day because she's probably 70 years old or yeah. close to it. And she kept telling uh, stories about her life during, you know, her younger years and how everyone was like hanging out. Yeah. And at some point, Maron was like, God, everyone used to hang out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, well, that was before social media. Yeah. And it rang really true to me. Like people used to actually have to go to each other's houses to hang out. You. You know, you call up and say, hey, can I come over? Or you just show up. Yeah. And now everyone's just on Twitter. Yeah. No, I, I feel that very strongly. That's great. Like, I the um, the way social media kind of isolates us, in the, you know, in this kind of this 
the opposite of what it's supposed to do and yeah just the the act of like going to a friend's house to sit and listen to a record yeah like it is i can't remember the last time i, I did that. i used to do that quite a lot you know and um remember when you were a kid and you just go to your friend's house and be like you want to play <laughs> yeah that's what i want to do now yeah yeah <laughs> all right all right walk walk over to a and just knock like there was like yeah now if someone knocks on your door it's always a problem like something yeah it's like some, what, somebody wants something from you something there's even if it's your friend yeah. you're like what are you doing here yeah like did i invite you yeah <laughs> that's bad i think we're missing something and i think they're uh yeah i think there's uh, you know i i argued with myself about this when i was listening to that because i was like you know it is you, you do miss something when you don't have in-person irl interactions mm-hmm. but uh, there is also something nice about having space, about being able to reach people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I think about the uh, the uh, argument about texting versus phone calls, where phone calls are you know more intimate and yeah. they allow for more uh, digression and possible intimacy. Whereas text messages, you can like be texting with your best friend and then you can just get distracted by a TV show and just like put the phone down for an hour. Yeah, get back to them at your leisure. <laughs> right, you know, right? Uh, and so there's a part of me that's like, well, that's kind of nice because. Sometimes you just need like an answer to some question. Right. And there are certain people, if you pick up the phone and call them, you're like, you're not getting off the phone for an hour. Right. You know? So I think that there are some practical benefits to it, but uh, I think you lose more than you gain by not actually having to be in the room with people. Yeah. I kind of feel that. I also know I'm totally, I don't count. I'm totally beyond the conversation. I'm a a dead ender. Like my (laughs) time is done. What do you mean? I'm just, I, I don't. Whether, whether it's a time that I feel like I'm, you know, how, like my sense that you don't come from a place, you come from a time that's like kind of uh, the past is a foreign country type thing. And like, I, um, I, I mean, I use all the, you know, I, I love Twitter. I love, you know, I, all that stuff. But like now and then I'll just hit a wall and I will feel this like, I just don't want to do any of this anymore. Yeah. Like, and it, but there's no stopping it. And it's. Well, no, Ben Laurie, a buddy of my, writer, a writer buddy of mine, I don't know if you know him, but he, uh, he tweeted yesterday, he's like, if tomorrow, like the internet, like if we were told that the internet had been destroyed irrevocably, it was gone, couldn't come back, yeah. he's like, I would be more relieved than upset. And yeah. I, I was like, I'm retweeting this, that's exactly how I feel. Like I, I use it all the time, but if it went away tomorrow, never to return, I think I would feel more relief than I would feel upset. Right. I, I think we'd be fine. Um, but not only fine, but like, God, I wouldn't have to worry about the internet anymore. Like, Oh God, what do I say on Twitter? Should I have said that? You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I obviously there's, it provides massive benefits and, and brings people together that wouldn't. That's true. Normally. So I definitely see all of it. I'm just, uh, I'm just a crank, I guess. So that's the way it is. Okay. So let's get back. I want to get back into the church a little bit because, um, uh, I'm interested in, in your upbringing and then it sounds like you parted ways with it a little bit as you got older. Yeah. Like uh, what happened? You know, it wasn't, I, it wasn't some dramatic break. Part of it was more just out of laziness and just, you know, um, I just had other interests, you know, and I, I think there's, you know, I played, uh, you know, I played high school sports and at a big Catholic school and everything. And, and it was, that was kind of my, my dream to do that, like to play in this basketball program. And it's one of those things where I, I literally from like third grade on, I had this goal to play. And by the time I got there, I realized like, I, it, I didn't want to, it's not what I wanted or I just, my outlook had changed. And there were a bunch of other things going on. My, my family was going through a difficult time and, um, what happened? 
I mean, my dad lost his job and it's just like right. economic disaster and everything. And, um, and also like, I just, I also realized I wasn't good enough to play with, with these guys. That's a hard realization. Yeah. I had that one too. We were <laughs> yeah. like, Hey, wait a minute. Physical limitations. Right. I know, uh, your listeners can't see this. I know I'm not a, the most physically imposing person. I mean, I, I could play, but like I was playing against guys who, you know, all went and played D one and it just, yeah. And, but I mean, that was like a, the, it was, it was a tragic moment in my high school world, but like, it was the moment actually where I kind of like had to like figure out who I actually was. That's right. Well, that's yeah. the thing about it is that so much of identity is derived, especially as a boy, mm-hmm. uh, from your athletic ability. Like, I remember, like, the uh, social pecking order being determined in, in elementary school by how fast people were. Yeah. Like, like, who could win the race? And suddenly that guy's cool. And, like, you know, he develops all of this uh, social power. Yeah. I mean, I, I to bring up one instance of that that has kind of been on my mind lately, a guy who I, I went from grade school all the way through high school with, and he was, like, the star athlete. All Like, he was the fastest guy in the class, and he was went to our high school, was – big football star and he was he was a nice guy he wasn't like i mean he was a jock and but kind of just a nice odd guy but incredible athlete but he was one of those guys who like after high school that like he had no more identity and he peaked yeah and i you know i hate to bring this up but like he i heard recently that he had passed away and no one would say why or how and i kind of have i kind of think i know what happened and i and i think he had struggled with addiction and what? It wasn't good. No one was talking about why. suicide. Yes, okay. and it was it was a bit of a big chill moment. Like I was like, I'm you know I'm 38 now, and I'm like, oh man, that guy, that was the guy. Like you know, he was the top of the, yeah the top of the pecking order. Um, but then when that goes away, you're if you don't have any something else, you're you're gonna get lost pretty fast. And right. Then, yeah, you descend into just male horror you know so well you know one of my buddies uh one of my buddies older brothers is just like one of these guys who was like he's just been good at life mm-hmm. great athlete good student he's killing it in business he's like perfect he fits perfectly into the world yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah. like the way the world operates like he knows how to play mm-hmm. and i had a dream the other night and i don't know if you can parse this for me but i had a nightmare where we were in a rental car together. And, and mind you, this is not a guy I hang out with. I didn't grow yeah. up. I mean, I grew up seeing him because he was my friend's older brother, but we were never like mm-hmm. close friends. Um, but we were in a rental car and the rental car, for whatever reason, in the context of my dream was going extremely fast uh, on kind of autopilot. Yeah. Like he wasn't steering. He couldn't steer. He couldn't control the car with the gas pedal or the brake. And it was flying and weaving in and out of objects and other cars. And I was the whole time just like, Oh my God, you know, I'm freaking out in the passenger seat and he's at the wheel the whole time, completely stoic. <laughs> what does that mean? Wow. <laughs> Just like looking at me like, don't you know. Either, either he truly has everything figured out or you actually can see the truth. <laughs> you, yeah. Let's hope the latter. He's put on blinders to the... Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So, okay. So high school, you, uh, you figure out that you're not going to be a D1 athlete. Right. Um, uh, your family goes through some hardship which I think can be um, identity forming and character building. And, you know, it makes you, um, you know, it's something that not everybody is aware of as a kid. Yeah. To become aware of that, to, to become aware of the way the world works, how hard it can be, the vulnerability of one's parents. Um, like what happened to you in terms of your self-concept with, with both of those things sort of happening 
you know, close to the same time. Yeah, I remember it was like this two-year period. I, I remember this day I walked home. I got back from basketball practice. It was like four in the afternoon. My dad was at our dining room table, which we never ate at. It was just a mess of bills. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah. If yeah, we uh, we ate. We were one of those families that ate in front of the TV and like threw food at the dog. And yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I walked in and just like. It, we're kind of a, a bit of a ball busting family a little bit. Like, and I, I walked in and my dad, it was a bit early in the afternoon. That was, it was like three o'clock. So he was home and I walked in and I was like, Hey dad. And he's like, Hey, and I was like, what happened? Did you lose your job? And I was like, <laughs> and then I go down and I like in my room. And then like later that night, my parents gather us together and are like, well, Jim or my dad says, well, Jim, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I did lose my job. <laughs> oh shit! And I was like, "Good, yeah, the yeah, worst yeah. human." And uh, but it, it kind of made sense because I real I looking back, you, the insights always come after or too late. But like, my dad for months had been like, his coloring was off. Right. Like, he just was like, I just remember him being like gray, and apparently he had like lost his job like six months ago and was trying. He didn't tell my mom for a long time. Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. And he, you know, it was uh. It was a difficult time. He, I mean, a minute, a lot of things happening, you know, like, um, my, this is when my mom actually went full force into the daycare industry right. without a permit or anything. Right. Um, me and my sister, older sister, you know, I, I, I quit basketball at that point, but I, it was kind of nice cause I had this excuse. I remember this. I, I would tell like friends, why are you quitting? He's like, well, I have to work. Right. Like it's not. I could, <laughs> right. but I knew like I couldn't hang with like I, I wasn't good enough, but I had an excuse. So always a bit of vanity involved. Um, sure, but I I went to work. Uh, I got a job at Kmart after school. After school, and I and I, me and my my sister worked at Disneyland, and we both like when I look back, like it was crazy. We were both working like almost full time. Like like I mean, I was working about twenty hours, twenty to thirty hours, and in, in my sister might have even been working more. And all our paycheck went straight to our parents, you know. And um, and at the time, I, that seems very noble, but I didn't really even think about it. I wasn't felt. I didn't feel like I was making a sack. Like it was just what I was doing. But Kmart was hell. Yeah. And it was this one of the worst five months of my like teenage life. Your world's collapsing. And there was a moment where um, there was an assembly at school. I remember this very distinctly. All my friends played basketball, so the whole basketball team sat together and then the assembly got to, or the basketball program got dismissed early, like to go to practice. And so like, you know, 60, 70 guys all around me stood up and walked down the bleachers. And I was like all alone, like in this big, vast, empty, <laughs> expansive <laughs> bleacher, just like, cause I no longer was, I couldn't go with them. You anymore. were not of, of them. And I remember I was so freaked out that I just, I just left. I went with them. And then I was outside and everyone's looking at me like, what are you doing here? I was like, oh, I just, I had nowhere to go. And, um, anyway, so damn, that's heavy, dude. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long, that was a bad day. And then Kmart was hell. And then like, but, but working, I should say, just let me interject and you can yeah. agree or disagree, but working a really shitty job is a very healthy thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, and I mean, there are all sorts of shit jobs, but working at Kmart, um, manual labor something that's sort of uh 
I don't know. I find that I found that experience as a kid. I worked on a construction site for the foreman, which meant that I basically was everybody's bitch. <laughs> yeah. Just like whatever horrible job, yeah, yeah, you know. And then like shucking corn and like, like I lit, grew up in Indiana, so that yeah. in the summers they would have those kinds of jobs for kids and like yeah. misery. Yeah. And you say to yourself like, I don't want to do this. Yeah, it kind of gives you that feel like anything better than this, right? Like <laughs> it lowers your expectations to a point where you might actually be happy. Like you know, like. Um, uh, Kmart, but this is what happened. This was like a couple, I, across from Kmart or not farther, there was this gas station where a buddy of mine worked and it was like the plum job in town. Cause like the owner was a alcoholic. He was never around. It's basically like every knucklehead, like in the neighborhood worked there. There were like dynastic lines of like these brothers who would work there. And it was really hard to get in, but like I got in and I, and I got to leave Kmart. And I remember, like, my whole, like, it was, like, Dorothy entering, like, it was just color. I was like, oh, I'm at the gas station. This is heaven. Because we just sit out by the pumps and, and bullshit and joke around. And it's an easy job. And I I loved it. And so that happened. Um, my dad, I mean, he had busted his ass for many years in the plumbing industry. He's a salesman. Like, he sells plumbing supplies. And he's just a good dude. And after a few months, a guy he had known for a while gave him my, he had worked, my dad had worked his way up to a certain point as a salesman. And it was a really bad time. It was a recession. And this guy's like, listen, I can give you this like really shit job. Like you'll get all the worst accounts. And if you can make anything from them, you'll get the commission. And so my dad basically went back to the bottom, you know, as like, a, you know, man in his forties with a family. And, he worked his way back up, you know? And, um, so by the end of high school, I had kind of like, I was working at the gas station. Um, I had kind of found some new friends who, you know, you know, were listening to jawbreaker and, you know, it was like, um, getting into music and stuff. And I, by the time I was leaving high school, I was actually like, I felt good. And the weird thing is like, I was able to get financial. I went to Loyola Marymount and the disaster of like my, family's finances helped me get like scholarships you know um but this was a moment um summer before i went to college i was like i I had like made it through um i was feeling very good and very lucky and when i was playing basketball at you know my high school there was a kid there um and i I don't i don't want to say his name it's an amazing name but like he when I first like entered the program, like people kept coming up to me and saying, I'll say this first, are you, uh, are you Sean's little brother? And I was like, no, I, you know, I don't have a brother. And there was this guy who was two years older than me who was like this bigger, better version of me. He was like <laughs> six, four, this kind of like pale rangy white kid who you could really play. And, um, he, but I just more on multiple occasions, people would ask me if we were related because we looked so much alike and I'd never spoke with him. I, I didn't know very little about him. He's just a guy kind of a couple years older than me. And I never really uh, thought about him that much. But that summer before I went to college, I was at a party. And I heard these two girls talking. And this guy's name came up. And I said, hey, what? Sean came up. I was like, whatever happened to Sean? And they both kind of got really quiet. And they're like, oh, you didn't hear? And I was like, what? Um, he, uh, well, he's working at Kmart. I was like, what? And, uh, yeah, on his break, he went out in the alley and uh, he shot himself. He blew his brains out. What? 
And I just, I'll never forget that moment. My blood ran cold and it was like, he worked at another Kmart. So oh, okay. some other part of the same County. One. And, but, and I remember he had quit basketball. Like he was some version of my very, it was just so fucking eerie and weird. And I remember just, uh, uh it was a memento Mori moment. I, I'll never forget. And, and I remember that was kind of some weird turning point, I think. in like, I began to think about him a lot and like, I don't know, little, it has nothing to do with writing in particular, but like, I, I, some part of me feels like I write because of that guy who I'd never met, just had this like weird glancing, uh, uh, you know, kind of moment with, you know, um, Anyway, so I got through high school, and then like college was great. Well, like, now what about college? Because it, you know, with the considering the the financial situation that you were in with your family, like a lot of kids might have been like, "Well, college isn't going to happen." Were you? Did you ever think to yourself, maybe I'll just skip it, or were you always going to do it? Well, like on my street, when I think about my street, I grew up on like, I you know, it was a very nice, typical Southern California neighborhood. Um, no one, like no one on the street, uh, went to the the families the parents never none of them went to college and it was like a lot of truck drivers and you know um construction workers and stuff like that but like it it was very much a, it felt to me like a very middle class uh uh street um all the like ki- you know the the younger kids on the street they they all either did one or two things they either went to junior college or Cal State Fullerton or Cal State <clears throat> Long Beach I just thought I thought that's what you did. Like I didn't think there was this other thing you could do. And my senior year in high school, I I just thought I was going to do that. I I just was figured I'd go to Cal State Long Beach, and then that's because that's what you did. There was no other <laughs> thing to do. And I had a, a teacher tell me about Loyola Marymount, and you know it's a Catholic school, it's expensive and everything, and um and I. I actually drove ended up driving up there with a friend and I, I remember I don't I have very little memory of like actually applying, but I have a very strong memory of a day I got home from school my senior year and I was like usually we'd go home for a couple of minutes and go to the gas station and I um drove I, I parked and I remember, as I was parking my mom came out of the door like with a piece of paper and tears in her eyes because uh I got my financial aid statement, hey, hey. you know, and like, so I, that, that's a moment that I, um, uh, and you don't even remember applying for that. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> but when you're that age, it's yeah. just like sign here. You know right, what? I know. think it was different than like, I think it, I may have just like literally filled out the actual application. Like, I don't think I, I, like, it was just you know, that piece of paper. I think I actually wrote the essay in the space they gave me. Yeah. You know, usually, you know, it was just, like, you know, a little folded piece of paper that I sent in. Um, but yeah, so in a sense, I got to go away to college because I was LMU was an hour away, but I still came back on weekends. I worked at the gas station. Um, during the summers, I worked at the gas station. At any break, I worked at the gas And it wasn't, and I. What kind of gas station was it? It was a Chevron. Okay. And it, uh, it was one of those old, like, pump first, you know, like the analog. It was kind of an old one. And um, so I just – and then at school I had jobs. So you, on, have, you have huffed a lot of gasoline fumes yeah. in your day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That explains it. And the, it was uh, across the street from one of these, like, um, electrical 
um, transformer plants, you know. So like even better. Yeah. So I'm. <laughs> I have some exciting things that, that had something growing in my brain right now. Um, but yeah, so I, I I had the feeling of going away to college, and I just I loved it. Like I I met great friends. Um, I worked at KXLU, which is like a radio station that broadcasts overall L.A., and I became kind of like a scenester kid, like going to all the L.A. shows and um, worked at the newspaper. And like, and it was like small enough where I could just go do that. There was no – it was no not based on merit. Right. Like I just wandered in and asked if I could do it, and they were like, yeah, go ahead, you know, because no one else <laughs> wanted to do right. it. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, I felt very, very lucky um, that I got to do that. And – Towards the end of college, I started kind of like actually reading books on my own. Like it was not very a precocious. I, I was going to ask when did the when did the literary thing start to kick in? I guess the end of high school. I remember I tried to, I applied to get into like an AP English class and got in. That was like a big deal. And um, I remember we read one summer we were assigned to read before a senior year, East of Eden and Crime and Punishment. And I remember just being absolutely totally lost like in a good way like immersed in in those books like just there was my whole world and i never thought about my writing myself i just like they just seemed like like these people were gods who could do this like they made this entire world and um and then senior as i got into college i started you know, I enjoyed my English classes, but I, at some point I actually started like seeking out writers on my own, which was like some turning point, you know, like, um, you know, who's Thomas Pynchon? I, I heard that name or something and I went and got one of his books and that led me on a path. And, you know, that happened in a bunch of different ways. Um, and then after college, I really had no idea what to do. I, I went back to the gas station, which is still open at that point. Are you and still working there? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was like a made man there, so I could kind of come. No, come but I mean, there. are you still working there? Oh, now? Yeah. Uh, no, this is the tragic part. It got torn down. Oh, so R.I.P. Uh, and I would, I would. Sadly, I would. There were a guy. There was a guy who worked there, uh, uh, who worked there for almost twenty years, like from from the time of like sixteen to like thirty six, and. Sadly, I would. If someone said you had to do that, I'd be like, "Okay, it'd be fine." Yeah. You know, like no, I felt that way about pizza delivery, yeah. and people laugh at me. But I was like, "I loved that job. Yeah, it was made for me. I enjoyed it." I mean, it, there were some nights where I was tired, but I never thought of, I was. It was never a total drag. Yeah. And uh, you got paid decently. I mean, I, I mean, I was yeah, I was happy like working with my buddies, and yeah, it was it was ridiculous, and I. That's what kind of we would all sit around and tell stories. Like we all had stories about customers and stuff. And like, there were just kind of customers who were kind of nutty, who we kind of loved when they came in. Cause it was just like, you know, we, we just kind of got to, you had like, regulars. Yeah. Regulars and, and, um, just kind of weird locals, you know? And, uh, yeah. So it was a nice education. It was kind of like, you know, a crossroads where I got to see a fairly broad picture. The pageant of humanity, uh, <laughs> came through, uh, Foley Chevron and um yeah so I, I had no real plans and then um I I started my career in journalism because I um I told a bartender who I knew he was a bartender at Islands which is kind of like a shitty you know chain bar I was like he's like what do you want to do I was like well I worked at a newspaper in college maybe I could work at a newspaper around here and he said well I I know an editor at the Orange County Register 
um, I'll give you a resume. Uh, and he did. And then I got hired. <laughs> like it was wow. like, because of a bartender at islands. Yeah. So, um, it's who, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I had lots of connections. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and so what did you do? Were you just like a, a grunt? I was a, I was a cub reporter for the sports page. So, um, which was great. I kind of saw the tail end of the, uh, the old newsroom with, uh, like the old Atex terminals, like these kind of mainframe computers that, and it was crazy. It was just like this whole giant floor of sports and news. It was just chaos, but it was amazing. Like I just sensed that everyone there was like really smart and kind of just knew a lot of about a, a lot about a lot of different things. I think that's like part and parcel of being a, a journalist. And um, I love journalism. I love news. I love. I, I kind of revere reporters and the people who do that workaday stuff. You know, just like covering a beat. The person yeah. who covers the the Supreme Court or whoever it is, or the sports. You know, whatever. I, I yeah. think that's really noble work. I wish that it weren't so hard to make a living. At yeah, it I mean, it's their uh, the business model of giving it away for free. Looking back, seems like a, a poor decision. Yeah, maybe it was inevitable, but like. Uh, I, I, I only, I did it about two years and I had like, not even that, it was about a year and a half. And I had, it was an amazing experience. One thing was like my first day I screwed something up and like an editor stood up and was screaming at me across the newsroom and it was fine. Like I just, I was like, this is how it works. And it, I didn't take, I, I got a thick skin because of it. Like, um, well, it's all I've, I've, from what I hear from people who have worked in uh, journalism that way, and then go on to write fiction. Is that you're, when you're working in that environment and you're on those kinds of deadlines, uh, it, it, get, it gets you a certain discipline. Is that the case for you? I think it, it, for a while it did. I think I've since lost all that <laughs> discipline. But for sure, like um, when I think about what I was actually doing on a day to day basis, like hitting hard deadlines every night, like I was like. I can't imagine being able to do that now. Like I, my brain has gone soft. Like everything about me has gone soft. And I like, it does kind of harden, harden you. Um, is it because you just fell out of shape or is it just be a function of getting older? Probably both. I mean, to be clear, I wasn't like, <laughs> I wasn't like Woodward or I was, I was like covering <laughs> high school volleyball games, but like still like it mattered. And, um, uh, yeah, I think it was just the repetition of like, you just couldn't be precious. You had to do it. Like you had to like, figure a way to fill seven inches of column space or whatever it was. And, um, the pro, you know, and then, it, but it's so formulaic, you realize you're writing the same story over and over. Um, I, I, I can say safely, I could not do that now. I would, I would be a wreck. It would just, just, I don't, I don't have it anymore. And, and the people who do have it are kind of lifers are, they're amazing. Like I, I like those kind of like lifer journalists are just, they're the salt of the earth. Like they truly are. And, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's a really kind of selfless profession. I mean, you kind of destroy yourself physically and mentally to tell someone else's story, you know, and there's something really beautiful and noble about that. And, and of course the fact that they're like so poorly compensated only, yeah. only adds to the magic of the profession. You well, know? just, and just basic information, telling people what's going on in the world, mm -hmm. trying to be a witness for people, uh, especially, you know, people who do it for the right reasons and put their best effort into it and everything like that's a really noble thing to do. It's yeah. a very vital thing. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's important that it continues. Yeah. 
It's okay. We we have BuzzFeed, so it's yeah. <laughs> old man. We've got top ten lists <laughs> old and man. old crank here. viral content. Yeah. Um. So okay. So you're doing that, and then are you starting to write fiction of your own? A little bit, yeah. I um. I remember dur- while I was at the newspaper, I I started writing like a joke spy novel that I just I wrote like a chapter of a terrible spy novel that I sent to friends and they you know over email and they were kind of liked it so I kind of kept doing it and then at some point I was like I've written like eighty pages of this like it just felt like a real thing I was it was horrible but like I I I enjoyed doing it you know and and I thought maybe I could make write something real um so yeah i was kind of i was reading a ton that was like a period of in my early 20s where i just devouring books and trying to you know just following my nose really um and yeah so then i started trying to write fiction and that you know sporadically here and there i left um I left the paper and I just wanted to leave. I was like, I had no life. I, I was living at home and, um, you missed the gas station. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and, uh, I would drive by and like, this is the thing about the gas station. Like I would go there to hang out when I wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> so that goes back to the community thing. Like a place to you. hang out. Yeah. Like, um, it's all about the people. Yeah. Like I have this theory that any job can be shitty if the people you work with are, suck. Right. And any shitty job can be tolerable if the people that you're <laughs> yes. working with are great. Uh, that's very true. Wow. You know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you're pumping gas or whatever, but if you're with your buddies and everyone's good at telling stories and can crack each other up, that's it. Yeah, no. So do that forever. Um, but I, at, at that point, you know, it was like 24, 25. I had some notion of like writing and fiction. And that's, I didn't really understand like, the mfa world like i but i ended up i like i applied to long beach state's program and san francisco state's program and i and i didn't get into either well i didn't get into the mfa uh, at san francisco state but they offered me something called the ma which looking back now is just like this terrible pyramid scheme they just let in anybody <laughs> so it was basically like an excuse to move so i went um and i I took like a couple workshops and a lit couple lit classes and then just were they paying your way or would you have to take out loans to do I it? I took out a loan. Yeah. I got like $3,000 or something. And like, so I just, I did that and I kind of hated it and I flamed out and, and just like, I spent the next three or four years just kind of hanging around the Bay area with zero direction and working all kinds of weird jobs. Um, what was it like? Because I, I feel like the Bay Area is a p- place of – I think of the Bay Area having never lived there as a place – obviously, it's got its bohemian element, but it's, it's also like the tech thing and ambition and people uh, who are hyper well-educated and are making lots of money and have all this – like to be somebody who's not in that world but yet living amongst all those people, did you get a sense of that or – Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's a, actually kind of how I – that's a good way to describe it in the sense that I didn't I didn't really have a place there. Like the first – tech boom had kind of faded but it was still like you know a huge deal obviously and this is like you know between <laughs> that sweet spot between flus and google you know like uh <laughs> where like all the shitty startups failed and then the kind of monoliths were yet to establish themselves so i 
I just remember like walking down a street. I lived in Berkeley most of the time and walking or actually during that time, the entire time, but just walking down a street in Berkeley and it was like the afternoon and I wasn't really employed and I'd see a guy I knew and we'd go eat a burrito and then listen to some records and, and that was my day. And, and it was lovely, but I remember having a creeping sense of horror. Like I kept meeting people like who'd been in Berkeley for like 10 years and look at all my records, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's amazing. But I, I think I had a bit, a, I don't consider myself an ambitious person, but I had slightly more ambition than just to hang out in the very pleasant confines of, of Berkeley and the East Bay. And I remember coming back to LA to visit friends who were a lot of them doing stuff and trying to do stuff in film and TV or, or acting or whatever. And I mean, that's its own kind of horror show, but I also like, I just, I felt very galvanized whenever I came down here. I was like, they're actually doing something, you know? And I, I formulated in my head that in, in the Bay area, people know things and in LA people do things. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I always had it in my mind that I, I, I probably needed to get back to uh, Los Angeles, but I mean, I had, those were good years in Berkeley and I, but they all, they're also kind of really, I was so ill formed. I, you know, there's nothing quite, I don't. I couldn't tell you what whole months would pass. I couldn't tell you what I was but, actually yeah, doing. And I get that. And like, who knows? I mean, maybe you would have been better off in some sort of structured environment, mm -hmm. working some sort of job. I mean, who knows? Yeah. But I tend to think that sometimes in a life and in a creative life in particular, you need those that, that downtime. Yeah, there have to be those lost years and those that that big empty space where you're just sort of floating. Yeah. Uh, and who knows what you were doing up, you know, in your brain, uh, what was happening, what thought processes you were going through, books you were reading, yeah. somehow it formed you. Yeah. Or, or maybe it was just enough that you got galvanized by coming to Los Angeles and realized you needed to get out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, I kind of like, you know, it, I look at it almost as like a hibernation in a certain way. Um, the big thing, again, was just I, if nothing else, I was reading tons of books like I wasn't. There was a th three or four year period from like probably like 25, 24 to like, or like 25 to like 29 where I, I barely wrote. Like I, I a couple of years would pass and I wouldn't write anything. And I, and I kind of, but I weirdly was still thought of myself as a writer. I just wasn't <laughs> writing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean that kind of, uh, that period basically, you know, came to an end, like, you know, it's something that a lot of people go through. My, my mom got sick and I was, kind of, she got cancer. So, um, I moved home and like, you know, I was home for a year while she was going through all that and she passed away. And what kind of cancer was it? It was stomach cancer. And it was, it was totally brutal, yeah. you know? And, um, and I mean, after that, you know, like, I think, you know, it's a very common thing and, but when it's also your own thing, you know, that you have to experience and, uh, a very difficult time. Um, it brought my family to get like my dad and sisters and I, we, we were always fine. Like we're always, but we, we became much closer. We're all living together. Like the whole, all the Gavins were under one roof for this, you know, um, and as Terry bliss or whatever you want to call it, you know? Um, and then, uh, you know, then I was a total, like I, I was sleeping, I slept on a floor 
in my old bedroom, like it would become a little office and there was no bed. So I slept on a floor for a year, which actually helped my back, <laughs> um, but there's no bed. And then my mom died. I was, you know, I'm 28, 29 and there was no, there was nothing in front of me. Like, but I actually had some weird sense that like I was, um, I had a weird sense of hope, I guess. Like, um, I had no idea what I was going to do, but like, I just felt like I had been through the worst thing and that things had to get better in some sense. And well, you have a less fear, maybe having already faced the worst a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. It, um, I had no plan and what ended up happening, I ended up, uh, going to work at the plumbing company. My dad had kind of been working at for the last 15 years. And I, they kind of just threw me a bone for a couple months, like doing inside sales. And then I became an outside salesman. So I was like, you know, driving all over the high desert, talking to wholesalers about toilets and stuff. <laughs> and, um, uh, and if nothing else, that's what was like, I don't know if I can do this. I think I want to write. And I hadn't, you know, so I had my plumbing years. I was living in long beach. It was weird. I was like some weird, like, I realized at some point I was like, I was a bachelor, <laughs> like it's like in a, like in a, some Jim Rockford set, like I had my little apartment in Long Beach and I drove around in my car all day and I went home and I was alone and I would just like, I ate hot dogs over the sink. Like it was just such a grotesque parody of bachelorhood at all times. And, um, that's what I like. Re I reread the stranger recently, which is it's a pretty good book. Yeah. And, uh, and beyond the existential, like it's just it's a novel about ba being a bachelor. That's like he, the he dude kill, is alone. Yeah. He kills the guy on the beach because he, earlier he was eating eggs out straight out of the pan. Like, the, like yeah. one thing somehow led to the other. So <laughs> anyway, so see how dark things could have gone for you. <laughs> um, You're lucky. So, so I've yet to kill anyone on a beach. <laughs> days young. There's still time. Yeah. So, okay. So what about, uh, you know, the the plumbing years and then somehow transitioning into a more serious attempt at writing. Yeah, I um how did you get out of the plumbing years? Well, it was it was a grind. I mean, the one thing was like I I was making okay money. So like I had my own apartment and I had I remember I was like I'm going to get out of here in 6 or 9 months. Like I there's I can't last too much longer. Um and what ended up happening like uh, a good friend of mine um some good friends of mine, these brothers who are, uh, uh, screenwriters, they, they were like, um, Jeff Cox and Craig Cox. They, when I met them, they were just two idiots who one worked at one job, like at, a, uh, I think it was worked at E like doing, uh, closed captioning. And then <laughs> the other worked at Starbucks, like the 4am shift, but they sold a script. They sold blades of glory, the, the Will Ferrell, uh, movie. And it was amazing. Like, they're just like, and they're the best guys in the world. And they had been living in this, like right near where we are right now, like over on Kirsten and like, um, Olympic. And once everything was happening with them, they both wanted to move to New York. And why, uh, for various reasons. I they made like, I just love that they did that. Like they had their big break in LA. They're like, let's get the fuck out of here. And, um, <laughs> I was going to say like once, once you break through in screenwriting, it would seem that you'd want to stay here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, they did it, and but I I was the I benefited because I basically kind of I was like I'm gonna move out of Long Beach, 
they were kind of we did like a sublet thing so I, I ended up like I basically had a place to live actually in LA which is where I wanted to get to like LA for me even though I grew up in Southern California is still this like far away place all my time it's like at LMU I was like I lived in I lived at LMU in Westchester and then Long Beach Orange County the Inland Empire was where I worked and lived LA was still like this you know big mystery to me and I wanted to live here and so I was like I knew I had a place to live and then I was like I'm gonna move I'm gonna quit my job and um I had a good friend um from my Berkeley days uh she took a class at UCLA Extension, like a fiction class, and she had a party at her house in Silver Lake with um, her class, and I, she invited me to it. I remember just like I had so much fun, and it was just like young people. I remember like I've been very isolated. I remember noting that there seems to be a lot of uh, attractive women who take these writing classes. <laughs> so like I was like. I wanted to take a writing class, but I think it was just, it was like, there's a social component to it. Like I wanted to meet somebody, you know? And so uh, my plan was to move to Kirsten street and take a class at UCLA extension. And I ended up doing that. I was still working my plumbing job, but I was like at the tail end. So I took this class at UCLA extension and it was life changing. Truly was like, I, I, what was it? It was just a, um, I can't remember. I don't think it was intro to fiction. It was like intermediate fiction or something. And uh, basically, it was taught by this guy named Lou Matthews, who is now one of my dearest friends. I'm actually going to a Dodger game with him tonight. Okay. And, um, and he's just this, he's like the OG of LA writing. And like so many writers in this town owe him so much. And I don't know. This is a guy who's like a mechanic for 20 years and uh, grew up on the east side. He was a street racer in the 60s. And he's just like, He's the man, and I. One of my great goals in life is to beat the drums for this guy, and I'm. His his work will get its due, someday. But anyway, when I took that class, I just. He's also like comes from a very Catholic background, and. Um, so you I, guys have a lot in common. We did, and I turned in my. Way. I turned in a story about some priests, and he after class, I remember the first thing he said to me, like when our kind of one on one thing is like, like where did you come from? You know, like, and he was just very encouraging. And that class was, you know, uh, driving. I remember driving up the 405 for, um, to get up there, like in trap, you know, still in my, like, I was basically dressed not unlike this for my plumbing job, but maybe with slacks. <laughs> yeah. No pleats. Yeah. No I was pleats. that, I was that cool <laughs> at least. Um, and going to sit in this little, you know, dimly lit room on the UCLA campus for three hours with a bunch of strangers. And, uh, and that was it. That was the moment. That's you meet like, a girl? No, I did not. <laughs> not <laughs> you can't have class. it all. You yeah, can't have it all. Yeah. Um, but I do, but that period where I, so I ended up quitting the job. I had a little money saved, but like I was taking this class. I ended up, I did actually did meeting end up. I did meet a girl and I was like kind of the start of a new relationship. And, when I look back on that period, it was like 2005 to 2007. I have such an intense nostalgia for it that I sometimes I can't even deal with it. Why? And I don't know. I think I've thought about this a lot. Like my Berkeley years, I don't, it was great, but I don't have the same type of like longing for it in a way. Um, and what I've come to the conclusion is like, 
when I actually think back to the reality of that period, like I was, I was broke the whole time. I was struggling to find jobs, but I was taking these writing classes. I was in love and I had some sense that the nostalgia was less, had less to do with what was actually happening than my, I'm nostalgic for the kind of dreams I had at that period. Like I was full of hope. I was full of hope. And I I just felt like I was actually moving towards a future that was uh, a possible or or exciting, you know, and has has that changed? uh, It's, it's up and down, you know, like you can't sustain. I mean, like that, that, you you know, it's, it's youth, you know, and it's whatever everyone has, I think hopefully has a pocket or two like that. And yeah, it's not going to be forever. For sure. And I, I mean, from my perspective, I've, I've only the, the, I've gotten many breaks and, and just kind of goofy things that went my, like taking that class. I can't, I don't know where I'd be if I didn't take, take that class. Um, but yeah, so I, I was, I was just writing, uh, I was trying to write screenplays as well with a friend and that was fun. And, and then I ended up, uh, I quit plumbing, and then I eventually ended up working at Jeopardy, the game show, um, which was its kind of own fun, crazy thing. You hang with Alex Trebek? Uh, yes. Um, I used to uh, stock his uh, refrigerator in the dressing room. I used to make <laughs> what, did, what did he want? What did he want? <laughs> uh, Anything weird? Diet right. <laughs> what is diet right? It's some weird old diet soda. It's <laughs> diet... Right, R I T E. Yeah, I remember my mom drinking it. Like it tab. Yeah, it's like tab. Okay, um, they advertise it during soap operas, um, or used to anyway, um, like Shasta and all that. Stuff. Where do you even get diet right? They uh, still they, sell it. They still had it at the uh, Smart and Final, which I would make frequent trips to. So, okay. yeah, I mean, I started as a temp there, and they just kind of let me hang around, and I really loved. I was like driving around the Sony lot in a golf cart. Is that where they shoot that? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I was like. This is Hollywood, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there is something great about being on those lots. Yeah. You're on those lots and you feel like some sort of sense of history and this is where the sausage is made. Yeah, I mean, I what I was actually doing day to day was uh, like making copies, running errands. Like if I were working at an insurance office in Omaha, I was I would be doing the same. But like the fact, just the fact that I was doing it on a movie lot, it like, I was it, like yeah, yeah. this is great. Like <laughs> I, you know, I'm really in the big time here. So, um, yeah. So I was I was doing that, and then I kept taking classes, and I started writing a little bit more about my 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 own life, which I had never really done before. So, yeah. Was that a turning point creatively? Yeah, yeah. I. I used to send out emails to friends about like kind of my day on the the high plains of plumbingdom. Uh, just a lot of uh, like this was my day, you know, and talking to some you know a plumber in Victorville about something, and just like our <laughs> adventures together. And and I I, like, I enjoyed writing them; they're entertaining. But I never I was like, that's not what story. That's not literature, you know, like. Um, at one point, I was trying to write a book about the French Resistance. <laughs> which I've no, yeah, yeah, that's never, right. It's what, gone, right, gone forever. Right, what you know? Yeah, and uh, but I, like a friend said, uh, "Hey, you should write a should write a story about plumbing." And I was like, uh, you know, like it's just so I did, and that was like a big deal. Like I, I, um, I was like, "Oh, this I'm kind of stuck with myself. Like I can." 
I actually, I actually, I was weird because I was like, I actually know this stuff. Like I can actually, I, it was really liberating and it, it's so dumb that it took me that long to like, just think to do that. It but takes like, a while for, you know, it, but yeah. it's not, it's not uncommon at all Yeah. for some reason. Yeah. I mean, I get what you're saying. It's right there in front of you, <laughs> but for some reason it's hard to see or hard to get to. Yeah. So that was it. And then, uh, I was kind of finding my way after that, you know, and you published a story in the New Yorker. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, that was another incredible piece of luck. Um, I I didn't have an agent. It just... Uh, slush I had, pile? It wasn't quite slush pile. A dear friend of mine, um, uh, who's a great writer, Suzanne Rebecca, um, she she basically passed it on to an editor there, which, she, which was an incredibly kind thing she did didn't have to do and it was one of these things where that happened she told me she uh, was going to do it when when was this this would have been in 2010 okay like in the spring so you know she's done this i was i I, and i honestly didn't think anything about it and it was like april and then in september i got an email saying we're going to take your story and Mm -hmm. i had completely forgotten about it and you did what who, who emailed you? Some editor in the New York? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and you get the email, and I, I was, it was shocking. It was, it was great. Like I, uh, I was totally. I mean, this is always the case, right? You have to reach bottom. Like I was totally <laughs> broke. I mean, things are okay, but like, um, I just thought it was hilarious. It was, this, it was a plumbing story. I just like, I, I couldn't believe they were going to publish like this thing. <laughs> And it's a story I'm proud of if it were ever been published. What's it called? Uh, Costello. Okay. And it's it ended up being the last story in my uh, collection. So, um, no, I, I I still think about that as, as like, just, uh, I don't know, it, 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 as far as a career, like, it, it was incredibly helpful. Yeah, because, what happened? What, like, what tangibly changed for you once you get published in The New Yorker? Well, then, uh, the good thing was that I had a, I actually had a book. I had finished a book on my own. Like, and I had, so at that point there was one agent who, and this was middleman. Yeah. So you had the manuscript yeah. ready. Yeah. Okay. And there was, uh, I had, t- I had sent out all my stuff. I'd done all that and had gotten no responses from agents except one who really liked my writing. And he was, you know, I want to see what you're working on a novel. So I was I had finished a collection. And I was working on a novel, which I'm still working on. <laughs> and uh, uh, and as soon as I I got the news from the New Yorker, I emailed. I was like, "Hey, uh, the New Yorker wants to publish this." And he like wrote back. He's like, "I think we can sell your collection now." And so I was like, "Okay." So and that's what ended up happening. You know, um, a total fluky thing. Um, and I have never not been aware of how fucking lucky that is um i, I think, that'll get a collection sold though yeah you know that's a good i mean that's it's, you're not the first person to whom i've uh spoken on this show that for that you know it's been the exact same case because yeah. story collections are notoriously hard to sell right but once you have that stamp of approval from the new yorker suddenly publishers get interested right and i it didn't make the stories any better or worse than they already are they just yeah had that kind of weird and premature or whatever you want to call it um so i just was like hey I'm going to have a book. That's cool. And I, at some point, like, I've never thought of writing as a career. Like I, there, there's, I did like, I need to do this. And then I get here. And like, that's 
I've only thought of in terms of books. I I, th- I knew at some point, like when I was taking those classes at UCLA, and you know, you had kind of these, you have this broad image of a book in your mind, right? And I had like, I knew I had like two books I I could do. I don't know how long they like. My only I can write these two books. And, and you had them fully formed in your head, more or less, or just like the broad the, outline? The kind of shadows of them. And yeah. some of them were stories. I mean, the the collection of being very different than I had probably originally imagined it. But but a lot of the same things I wanted to write about were in it. And then a novel, which I've been struggling on. For, but if I, you know, it's like, I, I'm going to do those two books and I, I don't, that don't, that's, I don't know where that'll get me or like, I don't want it. It's just, those are the books. So like, I feel like I, at some point, at least I figured out that I was working for the books, not for a career and any luck I've had in publishing came after that kind of decision of like, just trying to write this thing. Like at some point I stopped trying to get stories published. I was just working on my collection, you know? And, um, I don't know if there's some lesson in there, but like I, I, I feel like if I had tried really hard to do all like pu- get published and kind of do it like it wouldn't have happened somehow. Like I, I had to like kind of give up, <laughs> you know, and uh, and to kind of just focus on the writing or whatever. I don't know, but yeah. So I mean, that was a a, a very much a watershed moment. Um, and then you say you don't think of it as a career. No, I mean, like even still, no, I don't think I'm an artist. I don't think I have an artistic temperament. If I like, if and I've thought about this in college, like I mean, I, I love like The Simpsons, and and if somehow when I was 22 and I met some Simpsons person, like you should come write for us, I would have just done TV, and I probably would have never written fiction. Like it wasn't like, so I, I think of myself. Some for some reason I there I, I'm a writer, but I don't think I don't think I'm like an artist, and I don't think I'm doing anything. <laughs> particularly profound or or anything like that it's just like i'm doing what i can do like these are the handful of stories that i can tell and that's it like whether anyone whether they have any meaning beyond that or just by like i i don't i can't control that so i could i could totally see a period where i just stop writing you know it and well, how do you make a living what do you what do you just I mean, late, I've, I've been teaching, uh, doing some freelance stuff. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I'm trying to find more, you know, permanent stuff um, in L.A., TV, film, etc., right. like everybody. And um, I, so I'm, I'm okay. like I'm doing I'm I'm doing what I think I'm doing what I want, you know, uh, could be worse. Totally. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and I've been. I've been very lucky. I, um, it's weird because I've always pictured a kind of a conventional future for myself. Like I, some ways I like, I want to recreate my childhood in some way. Like I want a little house family and I, but every single decision I've made in my adult life has gone the other way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm like still holding on to this like idyllic image of like having made it as an adult. And it's really far away and i part of me is wondering if it, i i might actually be letting go of it totally i might just be some weird degenerate dude like well <laughs> i had that thought i mean it's yeah. like you know if you are a writer i mean i know you don't consider yourself an artist but i mean i think 
most people would call you that, looking from the outside in. Guy who publishes a story in the New Yorker and has a collection of stories in print. I mean, um, it doesn't mesh well with ordinary uh, suburban existence in the yeah. way that we know it, or especially in the way that our parents' generation knew it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a trick to pull. And then California is an expensive place to live. So it's like, how do you, how do you, how do people do it? What jobs are they working? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like what I was earlier, I was just talking about the street I grew up on. Like what was possible for like my dad who didn't, you know, go to college and you came back from Vietnam, got a job. He, he like answered a classified ad and had 40 years later had a career, you know, and, but you know, in 78 or whatever, 79, when they bought our house in orange, like, it was totally doable for that guy to do that. Yeah. And that's just, what people forget in this country is that you, you could have a single parent, uh, income, you mm-hmm. know, one parent working and you could raise a family yeah. and own a home yeah. save for college. That way of life is gone. And the, the, the thing I want to know is why, what happened? Yeah. We should, we should all be asking that question. Not that like, that's the ideal. I mean, if both parents want to work, great, yeah. you know, or if it, the, the mom wants to work and the dad stays home. I'm not saying that's got to be one way or the other, but um, it's gotten harder just to make ends meet and to educate children, and uh, that's fucked up. And it seems like a very small percentage of people are getting ludicrously wealthy at the same time that it's getting harder for, like, ordinary people to get by. And I don't think that those two things uh, are some sort of accident. <laughs> not at all. I mean, I... I uh... I, I try and read Paul Krugman and <laughs> old Kruggy, you know, like I'm, I'm very tuned into that stuff and I, and I care about it. And like, if anything, one thing I try and I guess right as a writer, like I, I, I try and document that kind of weird fall. Like, I don't know what it is. Like it's, a, um, it's on my mind a lot. Like it, it that, you know, I had this idea. I was moving towards this place where I, I could just be a person with a house, and like, and the, you know, that's gone. That's not there anymore. Like, the, what you would have to accomplish to make that happen is, inc- you have to get incredibly lucky, and like, and all these things. Um, whereas it, it seemed like if you were willing to just work hard or just or just work, you know, like, you could. You can do it, and like in Southern California, anyway. Like it, it, it's so skewed, and um, yeah, it, I I find it disheartening on many levels, um, and I don't really know what the solution is. I I sense like, you know, I'm not going to make any grand political statement, but I I think come on, solve well, this country's problems. <laughs> um, uh. Lyndon LaRouche is the man to take us into the 21st. <laughs> um, I feel like I have been having this conversation more and more. And I think at least that's good. Like, I think, I think a lot of people, it's on a lot of yeah, people's minds. Yeah. Cause it's like, Hey, I'm busting my ass or I'm doing the best I can. It's yeah. not enough. Like, yeah. What's just, I mean, not that you want to live like in some sort of gilded castle. No, exactly. I feel like the, that's the thing that kills me is like, people aren't asking for the world just like just not to like work 80 hours a week you know to barely get by right you know um you know can we get back to our post-war prosperity i don't you know i don't know like um 
But income tax rate for the highest uh, earners was at 90% at World War II. Yeah. And that was the generation that rode a huge wave. Yeah. No, I'm not, you know, who knows? That was when middle class people could get by. It was the, the highest uh, income tax bracket got knocked down to 70% under Lyndon Johnson. We're now, they're now paying 35. Yeah. So I don't know if 90%, I mean, 90% seems pretty steep, but, um, you know, I don't know. It seems like they had a pretty good, like our parents' generation rode a, like a historically anomalous, unbelievable wave. Right. And working people could organize and uh, people who were extremely affluent paid uh, a lot in taxes and were still affluent. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like the Rockefellers still existed. Do you know what I'm saying? Or uh, what's his name? The... Uh, the guy from Pittsburgh, um, Carnegie. Carnegie. There's yeah. still the Carnegies and the yeah. Rockefellers and the Kennedys, and uh, you know, it's not like there weren't rich people. They 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 were still rich because ten percent of a billion dollars is still a hundred million dollars. <laughs> 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 I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I think we should. Uh, you know, we gotta we gotta be doing something differently. Yeah. If, I remember. I remember. Uh, some an uncle of mine told this story. My mom's side of the family is all from Boston, and then they came out. West, like after she finished high school and my grandpa when he moved out here he was like in long beach and he'd been out here for a few days just looking around southern california especially like long beach in like 65 at the height of the the aerospace boom and everything like he i remember he he told, i guess he told my uncle he was just looking around and he said a guy could make a million dollars here just painting doors yeah you know like <laughs> yeah that that kind of like it was like an Eden, like to get to Southern California in like the 1940s uh, or earlier. You know, what I'm saying when the, when the fewer people were here, the Orange Groves real estate was affordable, like good real estate. Yeah, uh, that must have been an amazing time to be here. Yeah, and I try not to get too hung up on it. Like I like it, you know, there's generations here now that you know will look back on this period as yeah, that's the true. Idea, you know, um, and Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, especially once like the sea levels rise and it's like 140 degrees in the summer. <laughs> right. They'll be like, remember? Yeah. I mean, the headline here is we're all doomed. Yes. Um, so um, just get yours while you can't. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's all we can It's a do. great feeling, isn't it? Yeah. It's great. So what's this novel that you're working on? How far along are you? Um, I, it's taken, it's gone in different stages of disrepair and uh, dead ends. Um I actually put aside something I've been working on for a few years to kind of start something new that's connected in a way. But essentially, it's a it's set in Southern California. I guess you could call it a historical novel because it's it's uh, set in kind of late late sixties, early seventies, and uh, Inter interwoven with a narrative about the French Revolution. <laughs> right. Yes. It's yeah. It's going to be all things to all men. This time, we're going to really take on everything. Um, Napoleon plays a yeah. little, yeah. It's a rich tapestry. <laughs> um, but uh, a lot of it has to do with my uh, dad's Vietnam experiences and just being... Did he share those with you? Yeah, he's been, actually been very generous. Um, and I'm actually... Was he in the shit? He was. He was there during the Tet Offensive. Um, he would tell you that he had an easy tour of duty in the sense that um, it wasn't horrifying like i mean like he he i've actually been getting more stories as i've gotten older they were he all when i was growing up all the stories were funny you know he's a funny guy so he like and it was he just was like 
you know, he's drafted. He didn't want to do it. He's just like, like everyone else is trying to get through it. Um, but I've been getting kind of more about what he actually did. He was a recon sergeant, um, which meant he started in artillery. Then he, he volunteered for recon, which, uh, can be very dangerous. It's like three guys like are forward observers. They go out and map territories and, and check things out on their own, just three guys. And he loved it, or he wanted to do it because he hated. He was just bored on the artillery with artillery, and he hated dealing with the hierarchy. And he could just be on his own out in the jungle. <laughs> so, so he's in an FO group, and yeah, he. Uh, I guess he was well known. Like he, no one could read a map better than him, and like, but yeah, he spent. You know, he's drafted, so he basically had you know one year tour, and he spent about seven months like in the jungles um, with little respites in between. And then the third, last three months, like, if you get that far, they kind of put you, they take you out and they give you a desk job. So he spent the last three months on LZ Thunder reading uh, Lord of the Rings. That's how he was like. <laughs> so he, uh, he associates Lord of the Rings with, like, like he just loves those books so much because it was, like, his escape and his yeah, freedom and yeah. everything. Um, so, yeah. So I'm, that is a... A source of what I'm trying to write. Um, okay. And I'll probably get back to the other thing in some fashion, but yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, that's the problem well, here. So join the club. <laughs> uh, it's been great talking with you. It has been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming over, man. Best of luck with the book or the two books, I guess. We'll see. And uh, we'll be looking out for them. It was fun. Thank you. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Jim Gavin. Go get his story collection. It's called Middlemen, available now from Simon and Schuster. You can find Jim online at Jim hyphen gavin.com his handle over at twitter is at jim at del taco at jim at del taco he also has a tumblr presence del taco for those of you uh who are unaware is a fast food taco restaurant in uh, california and elsewhere probably Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own official app. It's called the Other People app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. Uh, the most recent 50 episodes will then be waiting for you free of charge. You can uh, download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. Fit the most recent 50 episodes for free. And uh, new episodes automatically upload. It's the best way to listen to this program. And then... If you want to get access to the full archives, if you want to stream all of the episodes, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very cheap. I don't know what this song is. <laughs> uh, I think everything's cool. I don't think my wife is inside giving birth to our child. I should probably go check. I hope I didn't do something wrong by talking about the bloody show. I don't know what to, you know, this is what's happening in my life, you guys. This is real life. This is what happens in a pregnancy for those of you who have not had uh, children. It was a bloody show. Please remember that Paul Salon's body wasn't found for 11 days after he stepped off the Pont Mirabeau and that Nellie Sachs died on the day of his funeral. That's it. Uh, for today. Thank you to Jim Gavin. Go get his story collection. Come on.
get the guy's story collection. It's called Middlemen. Thanks to you guys for listening, as always. I appreciate it. And uh, I will be back soon, I think, with another episode of this program. Provided uh, I'm not at the hospital bearing witness to the birth of my second child. In which case, check Twitter, at other PPL, or at Brad Listy. I need to start tweeting from at Brad Listy. I got to, uh, got to do something with that Twitter feed. Childbirth. I'll be watching a child be born soon. People always say those are like the, you know, the best experiences of their lives. I don't doubt it. And I feel the same way. I'm just like, okay, so I'm about to have one of those. Hope I'm awake for it. Got to remember it. It comes and goes just like all of life. Hard to keep hold of these things in your brain. Memories. They're slippery. Stay awake. Take some pictures. Don't take too many. Quit mediating your experience. Put your phone down. Watch it happen. Be alive for it. Is that the right thing to do? Do you film it? Are you really going to watch that later? Some women like to watch their birth. They like to go home and like watch the video of themselves giving birth. That's not my wife. <laughs> it's not even close to my wife. She wants nothing to do with that. I'll watch it though. I don't care. I'm not a, that's not something that makes me squeamish. I can deal with it. I embrace it. So I think that's it for today, right? I've said everything I need to say. It's hard to think about anything else. It's hard to get like uh, into a headspace where I can be productive. I feel like everything's sort of uh, on hold until this childbirth happens. (laughs) 